I'm Claudia Cowan, and welcome to Nightmare in Chowchilla, the school bus kidnapping. In our multi-part podcast, you're going to hear about an event that shook a small California town to its core more than four decades ago. 26 school children, ages 5 to 14, and their bus driver were kidnapped in broad daylight and buried alive. The effects of this event have had impacts well beyond the close-knit community of Chowchilla, and it has the distinction of being the largest kidnapping for ransom in United States history. Over the years, much has been written and said about this heinous crime. There was even a movie and a song about it. For those of you who know the story of the Chowchilla kidnapping, it might feel like just another part of tragic American lore. But to the men and women who lived through it, this is part of the fabric of their lives. Now we take a look back to look forward. The year was 1976. Actor Sylvester Stallone was packing a punch at the box office with the release of the movie Rocky. Steve Jobs was starting Apple in his parents' garage in Cupertino, California. And before he was part of the Kardashian family, Caitlyn Jenner, then competing as Bruce Jenner, set a world record at the Montreal Olympics, winning the decathlon gold medal. And July 4th, 1976, America celebrated her bicentennial birthday. Less than two weeks later, on July 15th... My name is Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president. Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter was nominated for president at the Democratic National Convention held at Madison Square Garden in New York City. That very same day, nearly 3,000 miles across the country, in a small farming town, a yellow school bus filled with 26 children and their driver had no idea their lives were in danger and that the largest kidnapping for ransom in U.S. history was about to occur. Here's how television station KTVU in Oakland, California reported the story. Today was the last day of summer school in this small rural California community. But for the children and their driver, what also should have been the first day of vacation has all the appearances of a nightmare. Anyone who grew up in the state of California around that time, like I did, remembers where they were that July day when they heard the news. I was 13 years old, living in Beverly Hills and attending bat and bar mitzvahs with my friends. I had just graduated from the eighth grade and this was my last summer before heading off to boarding school. For me, it was a carefree time. But unbeknownst to everyone, four hours north, young children were cloaked in darkness their lives forever changed. I wanted to find out how this horrific event happened, so I set out to speak with the people who were directly affected by the kidnapping. People who can tell this story like no one else can. A television news producer on the ground. Investigators found tire tracks at the scene. Local law enforcement. The parents wanted me to tell them what had happened and uh, what was the chance of uh, getting their children back and most importantly, the survivors. I said my prayers, told God if he got me out of there, I would never fight with my brother again. And in our podcast exclusive, 
Our production team was able to reunite two of the survivors who hadn't seen each other since they were kidnapped in 1976. I'm standing with my hero. Good to see you there. I was reminded there is much more to this chilling event than what unraveled during the children's hours of terror. But in order to understand this story, I first needed to understand the town. Chowchilla sits squarely in the middle of California, part of the San Joaquin Valley, the southern side of the Central Valley. It is the heart of the state, often hailed as the nation's breadbasket. Years of drought are threatening that title, but the sun-baked region is known for producing almonds, cotton, dairy, and other agricultural products. I drove to Chowchilla from San Francisco. Though it's only about a three-hour drive, the landscape is dramatically different. When the first tumbleweed blows past, you know you're in the Central Valley. Entering the city limits, I don't see any buildings over two stories tall. There's lots of land, pickup trucks, and American flags. Though there are probably more stoplights in Chowchilla than there were in the 1970s, it is still very much an agricultural community that honors tradition. In the summer of 1976, Chowchilla had a population of 4,600 people, and the youngest children were off to summer school at the local Dairyland Elementary School. It was the day before school got out for summer school, and so I remember being really excited. We had summer school not as a punishment, but we had summer school as a summer daycare activity. One of those children attending summer school was nine-year-old Jennifer Brown Hyde. Now in her 50s, she lives miles away from the small town she grew up in, and she spoke with me from her home in Tennessee. So those of us that didn't want to stay home all day, we could go to summer school and do arts and crafts and go on field trips and see our friends all summer long. The morning of July 15th, students were picked up for school shortly before summer session began at 8.45 in the morning. On the bus with Jennifer was her 10-year-old brother, Jeff. My brother was a year older than me. Um, one grade ahead of me in school and somebody that I looked up to and admired. Um, he was calm and quiet and a very studious student. And I was far from that. I was mousy and little with a loud mouth, constantly getting in trouble for talking, constantly getting in trouble for not doing what I was supposed to be doing. My brother had a magnetic personality. He was liked by everybody. He was an all-American boy. Larry Park was just six years old at the time. Larry Park, thank you for being a part of our podcast. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to be here. Larry still lives in the Central Valley. I sat with him on his front porch where he shared his memories of that day. Your story is so compelling in so many ways. And here you are to tell that story and what happened to you. I don't know if every adult can think back to their childhood, to the day of innocence, and then actually find that point in their life where the innocence got lost. He attended summer school with his eight-year-old sister, Andrea. Tuesdays and Thursdays were swim days for the kids. And this day, July 15th, 1976, was a Thursday. 
Splashing around the outdoor pool at the county fairgrounds was a welcome reprieve on a day Larry remembers being well over 110 degrees. It was the perfect day, you know, we, I went to school in my swim trunks and, you know, we went on the bus and got to go swimming and I remember I did this horrific belly flop off the high dive. As usual on pool days, school ended at 3.45 p.m. Farmer and part-time Dairyland bus driver, 55-year-old Edward Ray, was on site at the school to pick the children up to take them home. In a small town like Chowchilla, Ed, as the kids like to call him, was liked by everyone, including Larry. He was great. He was fun. You know, a lot of bus drivers, you get on the bus and they're doing their job and they drive you to school and they pick you up. But Ed knew every one of us by name. And he had driven a lot of our parents to school. I remember... I had to sit in the very front seat of the bus because I was just a troublemaker. That's what I did. I created trouble everywhere I went. And so my assigned seat was in the front of the bus. And he would look at me in the mirror and he would smile. And, and you know, it's like I could ask him to change the channel on the radio and he would change the channel. And um, I remember getting on there, going to the very back of the bus, just like any other day. I had on my pink swimsuit. I sat in the back so I could be loud and rowdy and talk. Um, I passed my brother, who was sitting about halfway, midway on the bus, and walked to the back where I normally sat down and started yakking away like I normally did. While Dairyland Elementary took students through the eighth grade, there were only a few older kids on the bus that day. One of them was 14-year-old Mike Marshall, who normally didn't even ride the bus. He was the oldest kid to climb aboard. I met Mike on a clear day at his family ranch, not too far from Chowchilla. It was nearly 90 degrees in the shade, and the air smelled sweet, like a mix of horse feed and hay. I was greeted by acres of rolling hills and the sound of horses and Mike's faithful dog, Blue. You have quite a story to tell, and it's really an honor after reading so much about this case to sit here with you. Thank you. Thanks. Mike's memory of that bus ride home remains sharp. You know, everybody was happy. Everybody was loud and everybody had the radio up and because we were going home. And um, we dropped a couple kids off and I was sitting in the fourth seat back. The only children he knew on the bus that day were Jennifer and her brother Jeff because their mothers were friends. Mike was a new student in town. His family had recently moved to Chowchilla from the Bay Area. He was the son of world steer wrestling champion Bob Marshall and was following in his footsteps, spending most of his afternoons practicing with his lasso. But Mike had a hard time adjusting after his family relocated. In fact, he got into a fight his very first day at Dairyland. Didn't get off on the right start with the principal, and so got into so much trouble that the principal had a conference with my parents and said that if I wanted to go to the high school next year, I could go to summer school and do the eighth grade in summer school. If I could do that, then he would let me skip the eighth grade and let me go 
into high school and be out of his hair. And that is how I ended up in summer school in South Chile, California. Mike would catch the bus to summer school in the mornings, and his mom would normally pick him up at noon. But that day, she didn't. The night before, my best friend from the Bay Area, Dougie, came to spend a week with me because we had our uh, junior rodeo finals at the end of that week, and um, we would practice during the day uh, when I would get out and uh, go swimming with the girls, the neighbors. And so my dad was gone rodeoing, and me and Dougie decided to get into my mom's beer, and... um, we tried to make some popcorn, and my mom come walking in, and it looked like the house was burning down. We burnt the, and uh, so instead of dialing nine one one, she realized what was going on, and she uh, said, "For my punishment, I had to ride the bus home." I thought, "Well, shoot, that ain't much of punishment. That's all right. I'll ride the bus home." <laughs> but I'm just relating that because of all the different things that had to happen for me to end up on that bus. Believe it or not, Mike nearly missed the bus he wasn't supposed to be on because of a girl. I remember I had such a crush on a teacher's daughter that whenever she would come by me, you know, to ask me if I needed help or anything, all I would do is stutter. I couldn't even talk. And so that day of the kidnapping, I didn't walk out the door at noon and be gone. I was there, and so I got to talk to her, and it turned out that she liked me too and so we were out in the orchard just talking and stuff and um the now mike <laughs> and uh, and um the buses started leaving and she said well you better go get your bus and i said i'm all right i'll be okay <laughs> and she, she said well get it on your bus and i took off running I flagged down the last bus, which happened to be Edward. Did I? I knew him. I asked him if I could. He, if he would drop me off at home, and he said, "Hop in." So that's that's how I ended up on that bus. Dairyland Elementary School was located about 12 miles away from Chowchilla's center and sat in the middle of sprawling farmland. The bus rolled past Chowchilla's almond orchards and cotton fields completing the first three stops to drop off children, and then continued on. Everything was normal. We let a few kids off, went down the road, turned a few turns. The trouble began when Ed Ray prepared to turn left onto tree-lined Avenue 21. We're going down a back road, and very narrow farming roads out here. Suddenly, Ed stopped the bus. When he saw a white van with its door open parked in the center of the road. I could vaguely see it through the very front of the bus. Point in the same direction we were, just a little bit over the center divider parked with its driver door open. And I remember thinking somebody must have broke down because It was rural out there, and there were not a lot of vehicles on the road when we were on the road in the afternoon. When we first saw the van in the road, it was just like, well, probably broke down, no big deal. But what happened next took a dark and confusing turn. 
The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Then these guys got out and they had masks on their face and they told Ed Ray to open the doors of the bus. And, you know, at first, I don't know. I mean, I was six years old. I I didn't, you know, it wasn't really registering. Oh, my gosh, you're about to kidnap us or anything like that. How quickly did you become scared out of your wits? I mean, were you frightened immediately or just kind of this is curious? I was not frightened immediately. Um, First of all, my brother stood up and thought it was a joke and said, we didn't do it. We didn't do it thinking that this was a prank that Edward might have pulled on us because this stuff didn't happen where we grew up. And so a man stepped out with a nylon stocking over his head and a double barrel sawed off shotgun and uh, Edward stopped and another guy jumped out with a sombrero on and a pistol and they got the shotgun came up to the window and told Edward to open the door and go to the back of the bus. It happened so quick. All I really remember was Edward getting up out of his seat and coming to the back of the bus and sitting across the aisle from me. And I remember thinking if he would relinquish the driver's seat of that bus to somebody that we didn't know, this was something serious. And then the guy with the shotgun came on and said, everybody in the first four seats go to the back of the bus. So I was in the fifth seat. They just moved all the kids that were toward the front. They moved us all to the back. I went back and sat with Andrea. And I could hear some kids asking if this was a joke. Like, you know, is this a prank? Because here we are at the the second to last day of summer school. Maybe some of the parents were pulling a joke on us. Then the guy with the sombrero and the pistol, he come on and got in the driver's seat. And the guy with the shotgun sat down across from me. And we took off. And the white van followed us. By now, two of the masked men were on the bus. One hopped into the driver's seat and put the bus in gear. The second man kept his gun trained down the center of the bus aisle. One of the kidnappers sat in the very first seat of the bus and pointed his gun down the aisle at the rest of us students. And where I come from, you don't point a gun at somebody because we all had hunter safety courses and knew how to properly handle firearms. I'm turning around because I'm looking at Ed Ray like you know what's going on or whatever and Ed Ray kept telling me to turn back around you know I think Ed Ray was saying really just be good this one time you know just just this once just don't act up and so they took us and they turned off the main road onto a a back road I can remember that we were going by a a dirt field and the farmer was out there and he was plowing his field. And uh, we're driving and he's kind of got the shotgun in his lap staring at, at me and I'm trying not to look at him and I'm looking out the window and I see a tractor 
plowing the field and it's coming towards us and I think to myself okay now everybody that knows Edward knows he's never worn a sombrero in his life and so when this tractor driver if he can see that this bus driver has a sombrero he will call 911 and they will come to our aid and just as we're getting closer and closer and we go on by and he's looking down at his disc to make sure he gets on track and I'm thinking lift your head up lift your head up lift he never lifted his head up The masked man who previously had pointed his gun at Ed Ray through his driver's side window was now driving the white van, which was clearly not broken down. He followed behind the school bus. The bus turned off Avenue 21 and into a thicket of bamboo growing in a dry riverbed called a slough. Then there was like a turn in the road and he just kept going straight and jumped the bus off into a six-foot embankment that dropped down into the slough. The kids weren't very far off the bus's regular route, but the place the men chose to park the bright yellow bus was well hidden. It was invisible at first glance among the tall bamboo. The slough used to carry the water naturally from the lake where the farmers would get their irrigation. Since the man-made canals came along, they don't use the slough anymore, but it's still very deep sand and real high bamboo. So higher than the bus. Higher than the bus, yeah. And that's where they parked the bus. And there was another van there waiting for us. What was going through your mind at this point when you saw a second van and you're in the middle of a riverbed? It it happened so quick, my mind wasn't keeping pace with what was actually happening. And it was so quick, they backed the one van up to the door of the bus and had half the kids get off, which the first half of the bus was where my brother was sitting. So he got off and went into a van with half the kids, and they drove that off. And then they backed the second van up to the door of the bus and made us jump one by one from the bus into the van. And so myself and the other half of the children and Edward were in the second van. So that was when I got afraid because I was separated from my brother. And even though I had Edward with me, that wasn't quite the same. I mean, I loved him and I respected him, but I sure didn't love him and respect him as much as I did my brother. I remember so clearly they had the right side of the bus get off. Larry remembers staring down the double barrels of the shotgun that was trained on him as the children were shuffled into the vans, one white and one green. It was like the closer I got to that gun, the barrels would get bigger. And it felt like I was going to walk right into the gun. And I remember stopping in front of that man and looking up to him 
and defiantly telling him, if you don't take me and my sister home, my dad is going to be on you like stink on skunk. And then I think it was Andrea pushed me from behind um, to keep me going. And I can remember walking down the steps of the bus and I, I saw I saw that crack of light in between the last step on the bus and the van. And I, I just knew in my, in my little bitty heart that if I crossed that line, I was going somewhere that I could never come back from. So we got in the van, and uh, they closed the doors and pitched the block, and they had it all paneled off. I just remember I was sitting in the back left corner, and uh, I just remember all these hands grabbing onto me, just holding onto me. The children's cries for their parents went unanswered. They wanted to go home to their moms and everything, dads, and uh, and the guy says, uh, "Be quiet in there." And so they, they couldn't get had a hard time getting out of the slough with all of our weight in there and the deep sand, and they kept getting stuck and spinning and they were pushing. And, Eventually, the masked men were able to drive the vans out of the soft soil. The school bus stayed right where it was parked, camouflaged and empty, except for some of the children's personal items, like a few towels, artwork, and bathing suits. And along with the bus tracks in the sandy soil were the tracks of at least two other vehicles. Getting into the vans at gunpoint was only the first leg of a long and disturbing journey for the 26 children and Ed Ray. Once they were tucked away, they were driven around in the pitch black in the two windowless vans from 4.15 p.m. until about 3.30 a.m. The vans rolled along for nearly 12 hours with no air, no water, no bathrooms, and with no idea where they were headed. Coming up next, back in Chowchilla, the time for the children to arrive home from summer school had long passed. Parents and loved ones who were initially worried began to panic. I just broke down crying. It was like somebody come down from Mars and just took them up off the planet. They knew nothing of the warped plot that led masked strangers to take their children. All they knew was that their children never came home. I remember starting to pray and saying, God, I, uh, if you'll bring my kids back, I will, I will. And I couldn't find any words. How do you bargain with God? Hi. 
everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.